Romans chapter 12. And let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word tonight. Father, we thank you again for just the privilege to come to you in prayer and call you our Father. And Lord, we know that you love your children and you love giving good gifts to your children. Lord, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts tonight. Lord, more than anything else on earth, we desire, Lord, to be right in the center of your will. And we pray, Lord, you'll teach us how to discover, how to know, how to walk for sure, in the middle, in the heart of your will for our lives. Bless us tonight, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Once there was a farmer who was going through a midlife crisis. He wanted to change professions and become a pastor. Well, one day, while out in the fields, he saw a strange cloud formation in the sky. There was a P and a C. He was so excited. This was a message from God. The heavens were saying to him, preach Christ. Well, the man sold his farm, went to Bible college, and eventually took over a church. But the first Sunday, (laughs) it was obvious. This man was a terrible speaker. He stumbled, he fumbled his way through the message, he bored the congregation to death. And afterwards, a friend who knew his story, who knew about his calling... He said to him, are you sure God wasn't telling you to plant corn? (laughs) Finding God's will for your life is a confusing subject to many Christians, but it shouldn't be. In reality, God has made finding his will for our lives quite simple. In Romans 12, verses 1 through 8, Paul lists six simple steps to discover, to walk in the will of God for your life. Step number one, you might want to write these down. Present your body. Step two, renew your mind. Step three, humble your heart. Step four, exercise your faith. Step five, find your place. And the sixth step, use your gift. Follow these six steps and your life will fall in sync. It will prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul begins chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, remember, for the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has been doing that. He's been extolling, describing the mercies of our wonderful God. And God has lavished upon us such an incredible salvation. So many blessings. The question is, what shall we give him in return? And that is the question that these last five chapters answer. Paul begins to tell us now what, how we're to respond to the great salvation that God has given us. And Romans 12 begins by telling us the only thing God lacks is you. The only thing you really can give him is your body. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The first step to walking in God's will is to give your body to God. Now, remember, the Old Testament sacrifice was a butchered carcass. But God no longer likes his sacrifices well done. Today, he orders them rare. He wants a sacrifice that's still kicking and mooing on the plate. God is now into living sacrifices. You remember Abraham's son Isaac was a living sacrifice. He willingly offered his body to God. He was bound to the altar. On that altar, understand, he had no plans of his own. 
He had nothing in his mind that he had to do or anywhere he had to be. He was available to whatever the father had in mind. That's being a living sacrifice. It reminds me of the little girl who was sitting at the end of the pew when the offering plate passed by. She took it and she set it down in the floor and then she walked over and she stood in the offering plate. Of course, the usher wanted to know, honey, what in the world are you doing? And she answered, well, I learned in Sunday school this morning that I'm supposed to give myself to God. Step number one, give your body to God. The second step is in verse two. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. J.V. Phillips translates verse two. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Resist the pressure to conform, to be like everybody else, to go with the flow, to run with the pack. You be the trendsetter. Think God's thoughts. Declare God's truth. You see, every Christian is either a thermometer or a thermostat. Some believers are thermometers. They conform to room temperature. They want to be cool or they want to gravitate toward what's hot. But God wants us to be a thermostat. Rather than register the temperature, why not set it? Why not you be the trendsetter? Why not you change the world rather than let the world change you? Don't be conformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The second step to walking in God's will is to renew your mind. The third step is to humble your heart. Notice verse 3. For I say... Through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Never forget the scoreboard in your life reads God everything, you zero. God deserves all the glory. How easy it is to get proud, to get haughty. I remember in high school being proud of the fact that I was in the starting lineup. I was one of the five select players who were good enough to start the game. And I ran over to the bench to pull off my warm-ups to get ready for the game. And as I did, it didn't dawn on me until my my warm-up pants were about halfway down that I had forgotten to put my gym shorts on that night. God has a way of taking the wind out of your sails. He has a way of humbling the haughty heart. I was so shook up I didn't score a point the whole night. (laughs) Hey, think soberly. Be humble. Realize how much you owe the Lord. The fourth step is to exercise your faith. Paul says in verse 3, to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. You see, one way to miss the will of God is to be too big. It's to think too highly of yourself. But another way is to be too small. It's to think too lowly of yourself. Oh, who am I to serve the Lord? God can never use the likes of me. But you know, a false humility provides a convenient excuse. Sure, you're a nobody. (laughs) But God loves taking nobodies and making them somebody when they trust in Him. God never likes... A head inflated with pride, but he does desire a heart that's inflated with faith. Be willing to step out. Be willing to walk with God and take that step of faith. The fifth step is to find your place. Verses 4 and 5 tell us, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ 
and individually members of one another. It's interesting to me that God has chosen to refer to his church as a body. You know, our body is made up of many parts, many organs and muscles and cells. But all those parts work in harmony. They work in unity with each other. And this is how the church should function. A perfect blend of both diversity and unity. In fact, our spiritual health, our effectiveness as a church depends on our togetherness. Oh man, did you hear? Did you hear about it? The controversy that has erupted down at the first church of the hand tools. It's terrible. Some of the members have complained about Brother Hammer. Oh, he's always too forceful. He's always pounding home his points, nailing the rest of us. That's when Brother Hammer, he started to complain about Brother Screwdriver. Well, I'm no worse than him. He, he's always going around in circles. And then he pointed to Brother Punch. He even has to help him get started. This angered Brother Screwdriver. And he said, what about Brother Plain over there? All his work is on the surface, man. He, he's done no real depth to him. Brother Plain then shouted at Brother Tape Measure. You're so, so judgmental. You're always measuring people up, always sizing people up. You always think you're right. That's when Brother Tape Measure turned to old Brother Sandpaper. He said, well, look at him. He's so rough and gritty. He's always rubbing people the wrong way. Why don't you all just go back to your toolbox? And just about that time, the master carpenter, Jesus Christ, arrived. He put on his apron. And he went to work building a pulpit from which the word of God would be preached. And he used the hammer and the screwdriver and the punch and the plane and the tape measure and the sandpaper and all the other tools, each in the right way and each one in the right time. Finally, brother saw. He saw it. He said, amazing. Brothers, we're all of equal importance in the hands of the Lord. And so are we tonight. If you want to find God's will for your life, then first, find your place in the body of Christ. And I do want to thank my wife for laughing at that joke. If your wife doesn't laugh at your jokes, nobody will. The final step to walking in God's will is to use your gift. In verses 6 through 8, Paul mentions seven spiritual gifts. Now remember, spiritual gifts, these are not learned skills. These are not natural traits. Spiritual gifts are supernatural enablings that have been given to us freely by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 points to three types of spiritual enablement. Paul talks about the gifts, the ministries, and the activities, or we could call them motivations, ministries, and manifestations. 1 Corinthians 12 lists the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, things like gifts of healing, words of wisdom, speaking in tongues. Ephesians 4 lists the ministries of the Spirit, the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, while the motivations of the Spirit are listed here in Romans chapter 12. In verses 6 through 8, Paul lists seven basic motivations. And when you become a Christian, God plants within your heart at least one of these basic motivations. Your gift will color your perspective. It's sort of an implanted tendency. It'll help shape your ministry. To some of you, God has given more than one gift, but to each of you, 
God has given at least one spiritual gift. And he lists them here. First is prophecy. Now, we usually associate prophecy with foretelling, but its primary meaning is foretelling. It's been said a prophet was not known primarily for his hindsight or his foresight, but for his insight. Here's a person that can apply God's will and God's word to specific situations. He sees situations in black and white. He reminds us of absolute truths. And he boldly speaks the message God gives him to speak without fear of offending. The second motivational gift is ministry. This is the supernatural knack for helping other people in practical ways. This person loves to serve the Lord with hands-on effort. The third motivational gift is the gift of teaching. It's been said a teacher's task is to take a room full of live wires and see to it that they're properly grounded. I feel like that's my job here at Calvary Chapel. The fourth gift is exhortation. Teaching instructs us what to do. Exhortation encourages us to do it. The person with exhortation can best be described as the spiritual jumper cables who go around the body and jumpstart the brothers and sisters with weak batteries. Reminds me of the fellow who went to the formal banquet at the country club. He was met in the doorway by the security guard. He said, sir, you're not allowed into this country club tonight without a tie. The guy said, oh, come on, I'm wearing a jacket. Why do I need a tie? You can't come in without a tie. And so he walked back out to his car. He got the jumper cables out of the trunk of his car, put them around his neck. Walks back up to the security guard, you know, with a real attitude. And he says, well, hey, look at this. How's this? Is this this okay? Security guard looks at him, you know, with a mean look. And he says, okay, but you better not start anything. (laughs) Well, the person with the gift of exhortation is an encourager. He helps jumpstart other believers and get them going. The fifth gift is that of giving. Of course, everyone should develop the discipline of giving. But the person with the gift of giving has a special knack for loosening the purse strings to bless others and to further God's work. I'll never forget the fellow who used to come to our church. He was known for his $100 handshakes. He would take a $100 bill, he would fold it up in in a little bitty square, he would put it right in the palm of his hand, and he'd walk up to you after service and he'd give you a handshake. And he'd just pass you that $100 bill. And when you, when you walked away, oh man, isn't that nice? Never did a Sunday go by that I didn't make sure I shook that brother's hand before you. <laughs> he just had the gift of giving in a unique way of demonstrating it. The sixth gift is a gift of leading. We could call it spiritual management. It's been said, don't agonize, organize. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40 tells us to do all things decently and in order. And these individuals with this gift help us to get organized, help us to mobilize for serving God. The final motivational gift is the gift of mercy. Mercy has been defined as two hearts tugging at the same load. Again, we're all called on to be merciful, but this gift provides a person a special capacity to feel and to identify and to empathize with someone else's hurt. Now, people ask, Sandy, how do I discover my gift? Here's a helpful exercise. Let's say a little tyke came running in through the doors here, down the the aisle, maybe my son Mac. 
And he came running in with the little potted plant that he had made in Sunday school. But about halfway down the aisle, he tripped. And the plant went up in the air and it came down and crashed right into the middle of the aisle. Now, if that happened, how would you react? If you would jump up, if your first reaction would be to jump up, run around, where's the broom? Where's the dustpan? We need to get this cleaned up. Well, then chances are you have the gift of ministry. If your first reaction would be to reach in, pull out your wallet and say, I I can pay for that. No problem. I'll pay for that little potted plant. Well, what have you got? You've got the gift of giving. If you were to run up to the situation and stand over my son and say, young man, let this be a warning to you. Thus saith the Lord, there'll be many opportunities to stumble in your life. And if you don't learn to watch your step, you'll live forever with skint knees. You've probably got the gift of prophecy. If your first reaction is to walk up and and show Max some clever little maneuver, teach him some little foot maneuver where he can right himself just in case he starts to fall again, you've got the gift of teaching. Or if you think, wow, I know how we can rearrange the chairs in this room so that that won't happen again. You've got the gift of leading, spiritual management. Or if your reaction would be to come up and give him a little pep talk, it's okay, buddy, you'll do better next time. You've got the gift of exhortation. Or if you ran up to him and grabbed him and picked him up and started hugging him and kissing him and, oh, let me kiss your little boo-boos. You've got the gift of mercy. But understand this. There would be seven diverse reactions among the people in this room. And they all would be valid, God-ordained reactions. And this is why we need each other. This is why we need all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. A healthy church appreciates its God-given diversity. Now, the rabbis had a method of teaching that they called stringing beads. Just as a person places individual beads Over a string to form a necklace, the rabbis would string together random truths. And so for the last half of chapter 12, this is what Paul does. He strings beads. He gives us some random truths. He says, hate sin. Love what's good. Be kind. Prefer the other guy. Serve God. Rejoice. Be patient in tough times. Continue in prayer. Give to other believers. Be hospitable. A man named John Thomas, he wrote a letter to dear Abby. And he said, I'm presently completing the second year of a three-year survey on the hospitality or lack of it in churches. To date, of the 195 churches I visited, I was spoken to by someone other than an official greeter only once. And then it was to ask me to move my feet. How sad. I hope that John Thomas has never visited Calvary Chapel. Guys, we need to accept others. Reach out and be hospitable just as the Lord has been hospitable to us. I always say there's only one thing better than Southern hospitality, and that's Christian hospitality. And we have an opportunity to show both. Paul continues stringing beads. He says, repay persecution with blessing. Share in each other's joys and struggles. Be like-minded. I like verse 16. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Hey guys, set your convictions in concrete. 
but hold your opinions loosely. Opinions are a dime a dozen. Everybody's got an opinion. Be open and ready to embrace a better opinion if one comes your way. Verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, at times, your stand for what's true and what's right will make it impossible to live peaceably with others. At other times, their stubbornness will make it impossible. But you make sure as much as depends on you that you live peaceably with all men. You be willing to forgive. You be willing to forget. Make sure that the reason you're not living peaceably is because you're clutching on to a mere opinion. Hey, your opinion is not as important as living peaceably with all men. Verse 19 and 20 teaches, you never win by trying to even the score. Remember that. You never win by trying to even the score. Understand, Paul doesn't say that we shouldn't fight back when we're attacked. We should assert ourselves. We should fight back. Don't just sit there and take it. Retaliate. But don't fight evil with evil. If you do, you become no better than your enemy. Learn to fight evil with good. Retaliate with love. Fight back with truth. Verse 21 tells us, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 teaches us, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. God has sanctioned three institutions on earth. The church the family, and the government. And we need to live in obedience to the governing authorities. Paul says in verse 2, Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And that doesn't mean that God condones every decision that a government makes. But generally speaking, governments exist. Their laws are to establish and uphold what is good and, and to repress and to put down what is evil. Legislators, police officers, they aren't out there trying to pick on the good guys. They're there after the bad guys. And that's why verse 5 tells us that we're to obey the law. Not just because we don't want to get caught, but we want to obey the law for conscience sake, Paul says. In other words, we need to show respect for law and order. Remember, Paul wrote the book of Romans while living under the oppressive and bloodthirsty reign of Emperor Nero. You think Bill Clinton was bad. Emperor Nero. Now he was really a character. Paul knew that when the laws of the land conflict with the laws of God, our duty is clear. We must obey God rather than man. But you know that's the rare situation. It really is. What's more common is to see a praise the Lord bumper sticker flying down the interstate doing 95 miles an hour. Guys, it's a sorry witness. And if a believer can't submit to authorities that can be seen, how can we then tell others to submit to an authority that they can't see? Paul even tells us to pay our taxes. Verse 6 says, For because of this you also pay your taxes, for they are God's ministers. Now understand, 
I'm sure that some of Paul's tax bill went to fund Nero's lewd parties, his bloodthirsty events that were staged in the Colosseum, but he still paid his taxes. Guys, once you sign your name to the bottom of 1040 form, seal the envelope, put it in the mailbox, from then on, God holds the politicians responsible for how the money is spent. Our God-given responsibility is to pay our taxes. Verse 8 is an encouragement to get out of debt. He says, owe no one anything except to love one another. That's a good goal for all of us. Cut up your credit cards before you go home. Set up a plan to pay off your debts. The only good debt is to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. All the Old Testament laws. What was the law about? It was all about how to treat your neighbor. How to love your neighbor. All those laws about your neighbor's ox and what to do if your ox fell in the ditch and all that kind of stuff. What was it? He was trying to show a picture of what love looked like. Therefore, if you just love, you will fulfill the law. The laws will become obsolete because you'll be fulfilling the intent of the law, which is to love one another. Verse 11 tells us, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Reminds me of the little boy who heard the grandfather clock malfunction. It chimed 15 times. He shouted, mommy, it's later than it's ever been before. And that's also true prophetically. It is later than it's ever been before. Jesus is coming back soon. Time to do good is running out. Verse 12 says, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. And in light of all this, Paul tells us in verse 13, Don't get drunk. Don't shack up and commit fornication and run off into lewdness. Don't gossip and envy others. He says, Put on Jesus. And stop catering to fleshly desires. So, present your body. Renew your mind. Humble your heart. Exercise your faith. Find your place. Use your gift. Love your family. Bless your enemies. Obey your authorities. And you'll create a momentum that will propel you right into the will of God for your life. In Romans chapter 14... Paul addresses two types of Christians. There is the weaker brother. He's straight-laced. He's stiff. He's self-righteous. He believes in Jesus, but he leans on the law. His faith is hindered by legalistic tendencies. He minds his religious manners, for he expects his performance to sustain God's favor. Whereas the stronger brother, he's free from law and tradition. He knows that he's right with God by faith alone. He recognizes that in Christ, compliance to custom is no longer required. What God expects of us now is not compliance, but reliance upon Jesus. Problems result, though, when the conformist begins to judge his nonconformist brother and vice versa. And this is what had happened in the church at Rome. You see, the city had a wholesale grocery called the Shambles. And there you could purchase quality meat at cut-rate prices. And the church members, they were down shopping in the shambles, taking advantage of the savings. The shambles, though, got its meat 
from pagan temples. See, the idolaters would make their sacrifice, then they would sell the extras to turn a profit for their false prophets. The stronger believers weren't bothered by the tainted meat. Hey, meat was just meat. What's the big deal here? They were sure that their standing with God was based on the faith that they placed in Christ, not the food they put on their plate. The libertarians felt free to cook out and barbecue. The weaker believers, though, they were appalled at the thought of eating desecrated meat. This was guilt by association. To them, eating the meat that had been sacrificed to an idol was for them participating in that idolatry. And so they said, hey, wait a minute, we're not going to eat meat at all. To the vegetarians, ground round was out of bounds. And so you had a division, the libertarians and the vegetarians. First, Paul tells them, who are they to judge each other? Understand, guys, you are not my Lord and I am not your Lord. There is one Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. And Paul says in verse four to his own master, he stands or falls. And then he adds a note of confidence. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. In other words, the Lord is faithful to grow each of us at our own pace and in a way that's best for us. The Lord has a plan of discipleship for each one of our lives. Verse 9 sums up the intent of all that Jesus didn't say, said. He said he died and rose and lived again to what? To be Lord. If Jesus died and rose and lived again to be Lord, don't you try to usurp his place in somebody else's life. When it comes to meat sacrifice to idols and other gray matters, what should we do? If the issue appears and is answered in the Bible, then it's easy. Just follow the script. The black and whites are easy. But what about the gray matters that we face? For us, a gray matter, a issue of meat sacrifice to idols might be whether it's okay to watch a certain movie or go dancing or smoke a cigar or have a glass of wine with dinner or what Bible translation should I use? Or is it right for me to drive a luxury automobile when there are people starving in the world? Or can a Christian be spiritual and still have a tattoo? Well, if the Bible addresses it, case closed. We got the answer. The Bible has the last word. But if the Bible doesn't address it, then each of us has to make our own decision before the Lord. And invariably, some will feel the liberty to participate and others will feel the need to refrain. In the case of meat sacrifice to idols, Paul realizes that at the core of this, this is really no big deal. He comments in verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. In other words, meat is just meat. Music is just music. Dice is just dice. What makes the object good or evil depends on how it's used or abused. Music is just notes. What makes it good music is if it glorifies God. What makes it bad music is if it glorifies the things of the world and the plan of the devil. You see, there are two limitations that God places on our freedom in Christ. First, it shouldn't cause me to fumble. And second, it shouldn't cause my brother to stumble. 
If an activity robs me of my freedom by placing me under its bondage, or if it threatens the freedom of my brother, then I am not free to participate. As believers, we want to be controlled not by sin, but by the Savior, by the Lord Jesus. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases the last line of verse 15. He says, don't you dare let a piece of God-blessed food become an occasion of soul poisoning. You be careful how you exercise your freedom. If you have that glass of wine, someone might see you and think it's okay for them to also participate. But maybe they're at a different place. Maybe they've struggled with alcohol in the past. Maybe their indulgence will lead to their downfall. So you be careful how you exercise your freedom. Verse 17 helps us get above this issue. He says, for the kingdom of God. It's not about eating and drinking anyway. But it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, meat and drink are of little consequence in terms of the things that are important to God. What matters in the kingdom are matters of the heart. What matters in God's kingdom is your attitude. It's your purity of heart. Recently, I ran across a quote by a fellow named Phil Taylor. And I really related to his quote. He grew up in a white church here in the Deep South during the 1960s. And I can really identify with his experience. He recalls, I don't know how we missed it. While King marched on Selma and an entire race cried out for justice, I heard sermons against rock and roll, the Beatles, many skirts and long hair, but I never heard them mention racism intolerance, injustice, hatred, and bigotry. Those are the things that God hates. You know, so often we Christians, we major on the minors and we minor on the majors. We get caught up in petty, picky things, little things of no consequence like eating and drinking while we neglect the major things of the kingdom, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. To sum up chapter 14, What have I accomplished if I prove my point but lose my brother? What have I accomplished if I've exercised my freedom but caused a brother to fall? What matters to God is our love for each other. It's our togetherness with each other. The weaker brother needs to grow in understanding, but the stronger brother needs to grow in love. In chapter 15, verse 1, Paul draws his conclusions. He says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. In fact, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 15 remind us that this was the example that Jesus set. This is what is taught in Scripture. We need to be patient towards each other and give room and space for each other to grow. You know, tolerance is probably the most underrated Christian virtue. We like friends who come already assembled. When we find that a friend has idiosyncrasies that irritate and aggravate and agitate us, we tend to gravitate away from that friend. But Paul tells us that we are to bear with each other. Remember that God is not finished with you and God is not finished with your friend. You should show the same patience toward him or her that God has shown towards you. In verse 7, Paul tells us, receive one another just as Christ also received us. 
And he describes in verses 8 through 13 how Jesus has received both Jews and Gentiles. He even quotes several Old Testament scriptures to prove his point. Receiving one another. Oh, that sounds like an easy task, doesn't it? Until it requires us to open up our circle to a different stripe or type of person. In the church, we need to remember there are no Jews and Gentiles. There are no black and white. There are no bulldogs and yellow jackets. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul instructs us in verse 5 to be like-minded toward one another. And then in verse 6, he tells us why. So that you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Praise is the reason for our patience with each other. So that we can praise God with one mind and one mouth. In chapter 15, Paul tells us to bear with one another, to receive one another. The chapter is full of these one another commands. And there's one more in verse 14. He says, admonish one another or literally remind and caution each other. You see, it's our responsibility to speak into each other's life instruction and correction when needed. Don't sit back. And watch another believer go astray or walk away. Don't say, oh, it's none of my business. It is your business to admonish a wayward brother. You see, if Paul had not taken this seriously, most of the New Testament would have never been written. What was it but admonishment? The book of Romans, in fact, is Paul's effort to get involved in the lives of the believers at Rome. Paul was no sideline Christian, and he doesn't want you to be either. He was willing to risk rejection, even misunderstanding, to admonish other people. There were two areas, though, where Paul refused to infringe. He says in verse 15 that he refused to teach what he had not personally experienced. And then in verse 20, he says he never preached uninvited from another person's platform. Good policies for the servant of God today. In verse 20, Paul says, I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Paul didn't want to ride on anyone else's coattails. He was a trailblazer. He wanted to go where no man had gone before. He was interested in new frontiers for Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in verse 24 that his eyes are set on Spain. In the meantime, he's headed to Jerusalem to bring an offering that had been given by the Gentile churches. But when he does travel again, he wants to go to Spain. And in the process, he'll stop off and visit the Romans. In Romans chapter 16, Paul proves, or the chapter proves, that Paul was not only a soul winner, but he was also a friend maker. In these closing comments, Paul mentions 35 different names. And what is amazing is that Paul had never been to Rome, and yet he knew many of the church's members. You see, while Paul wasn't busy winning the world for Jesus and writing most of the New Testament, he spent his time keeping up with his friends. Hey, when Paul became your friend, you had a forever friend. Paul was a faithful friend. Paul was a people person. As every Christian should be. He loved the people that Jesus died to save. He never got too busy for people. Guys, when we get too hurried, when we feel too important to cultivate personal relationships, hey, know that your priorities are out of kilter. 
He lists his friends here in this chapter. The first person he mentions is Phoebe. In verse 1, he calls her a servant of the church in Sincrea. The Greek word translated servant can also be translated deacon. And this is why I believe that there were women in the early church who served as deacons. Remember, a deacon was not a position of authority, but of service. The deacons were the designated doers. And there were women who served in that capacity. Verses 3 and 4 mention a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who Paul says, risked their own necks for my life. Understand, if you are a faithful friend, then folks will be faithful friends to you. If you show commitment to others, they'll show commitment to you. Too often we want friends, but we wait for other people to come to us. No, you go out, you be a friend, and you'll find that you have friends. Did you know there's a vitamin that you can take that will produce friendship in your life? Did you know this? There is a vitamin that you can take that will produce friends. It's called B1. Verse 12 tells us that Trifina and Trifosa. Trifina, by the way, means dainty. Trifosa means delicate. And yet, dainty and delicate were rugged servants who tirelessly labored for the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 15, he says, greet Philologus. Hey, if you're an expected parent, here's a great name for your baby. Just call him Philologus. Now, you know what it means. Lover of the word. That is a good name. Lover of the word. May we all be like Philologus. In chapter 14, Paul taught the Romans to be tolerant toward traditions and customs. But when it came to doctrine, it was a whole other story. In verse 17, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. Note them. Mark them down. Take their name. Contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. You see, when it comes to false doctrine, take down names. If a person stirs up division, if they stray from the truth, mark it, watch it. Take note of that person. And if they continue, then avoid them completely. It's okay to receive one another as long as the other doesn't try to deceive the saints. Paul mentioned some of his buddies in Corinth. Among them was Tertius, his stenographer. You see, Paul would dictate his letters and then uh, someone else would write them out and then Paul would sign them at the end. Here's a closing thought. Of the 35 names mentioned in Romans chapter 16, all we know about most of these people are the capsuled comments that we have here in this chapter. Which brings up an interesting thought. If a description of your life had to be rolled up into a single sentence, what would it say? Greet Sandy who blank. Greet Creston who blank. Greet Patricia who blank. How would they fill in your blank? Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your goodness toward us, Lord. 
We thank you for the book of Romans and the blessing it's been in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Lord, to truly grasp your grace for our lives, to truly walk in the victory that's ours in Christ Jesus. To enjoy this great salvation that you've worked for us, the righteousness of God that's ours through Christ. But then, Lord, in return, because of these great mercies, help us, Lord, to present our bodies to you to renew our minds, to humble our hearts, to exercise our faith, to find our place, to use our gifts, to be the people you want us to be. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for loving us. And we pray, Lord, you'll bless us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.